Would you all join me in prayer? Almighty Father, the majestic, wonderful creator of this universe, this world, and we ourselves, we are so grateful that we can come before you at this time to honor you on your day, to put aside this world and focus entirely on you. We pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you will bless us this day as we learn more of your word and with that your will so that each of us will leave here having grown, having a blessing from you. And all those who are watching from afar, if you would be with them as well, as they seek as well to understand your word, that they might live it as well as we, that one day we might be found worthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven when Yahshua calls. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll be with us now, and we thank you again for your holy day in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. May be seated. Well, I understand we are actually broadcasting today. You know, uh, modern technology can be a, a blessing and also a trial. But uh, technical guys say we're up and running, so um, we're glad to uh, hear that. Paul tells Timothy that in the last days, perilous times shall come. 2 Timothy 3.1. Perilous means difficult and hard to deal with, kind of like our technology sometimes. The word is used in Matthew 8.28 of those two demoniacs, if you remember, who were stopping people and not letting them go by on the pathway or whatever. And Yahshua had to cast their demons into the swine to take care of the situation. And that sure describes these difficult times and hard to deal with days, I think. Times is the Greek keros, which means when things are brought to a crisis. We'll talk about that, how things have been brought to a crisis in our culture over the last 30, 50 years. And it means there also implies that there are decisive turning points. And the word perilous added to it translates to very difficult, grievous developments. Crisis trends will come. So when Timothy says perilous times will come, he means in the last days dangerous movements and ideologies are going to take over our world, our culture, and it's going to even threaten the truth. And according to verse 13, they will increase in severity because evil men and imposters will get worse and worse, from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. You know, satanic worldwide philosophy and all that goes with that is a powerful influence. It's, it's the thing we deal with directly the most in our world today. With its values, its evil that engulfs everything like some giant black hole that sucks in light. We might say it sucks in the light of the truth. From the beginning of the last days until Yahshua comes, there will be an escalating severity and a growing frequency of these dangerous obsessions. We already see political correctness replacing Bible truth, don't we? We see man's ideas of what's right and wrong replacing Yahweh's word taught by the scriptures. It began early on in the book of Acts, even while the apostles were still actively taking the word to the world. 
Paul in Acts 20, 29 said that once he was gone, grievous wolves would enter in, jump to scatter the flock. And it would be not just outside attackers, but it's going to come from inside as well. A double whammy, two-pronged attack. Verse 30, also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Perverse is diastropho, meaning morally corrupt and perverse. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the mystery of iniquity was already at work, and that word mystery is musterion, meaning spirit of disobedience. A spirit of disobedience has taken over our culture, our world today. These apostasies have matured and have advanced beyond the, just the twisting of Scripture, advanced far beyond just the ignoring of Scripture, but actually perverting Scripture and what it teaches to something very sinister and destructive, the wholesale elimination of Yahweh's word in the social conscience. That's what we see today. So, when the Son of Man comes, Yahshua asked in Luke 18, shall he find the faith on the earth? Faith, or possibly the faith. It'd be even more apropos to say the faith. Christianity is struggling right now. But the faith will really struggle once, once everything starts to happen. Well, Jude tells us in verses 3 to 4 that we must contend for the faith once delivered. Why? Verse 4 tells us because of the influence of an increasingly pagan world on the truth. To the point of removing Yahweh and Yahshua themselves from people's minds. Used to be, you know, if you have a trouble, everybody go to prayer. Now they try to work everything out themselves. Go to the philosophers, go to the psychologists. And amazingly, this very thing was prophesied in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. We see this exact same thing. And when you start reading prophecy like this and seeing it happen, you say, wow, look how accurate the Bible really is. When you can define exactly what's happening and we see it happening all around us. You know, Peter is, uh, I'm going to talk about him a little more later, but a uh, very powerful writer. Once he got the Holy Spirit, he was into it. But there were false prophets among them, people, and even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master that bought them, and bring about upon themselves swift destruction. Many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth excuse me, shall be evil spoken of. Evil spoken of the truth. Don't we see that today too? People hate the truth. Naturally, because this is what Satan focuses on, those that follow truth. And through uh, covetousness, they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their condemnation slumbereth not. There will be a time of retribution. In the 1950s, we saw the upswing of what they call ecumenism. Ecumenism, the churches were getting together. Unity was the buzzword. Set aside our doctrinal differences to get along, people. That was what they were saying. 
Churches were falling into this like cascading like dominoes. And the move was to set aside doctrinal difference so that there was no splits over issues or doctrines. In direct opposition to what Yahweh says, that truth divides. You can't make it stick if it's truly being followed. It won't work. Truth operates in a single direction, leading to the kingdom. It's not a free-for-all. It's not all roads lead to salvation, as they said in this uh, movement, but it divides because not everyone's going to follow it. 2 Timothy 4.2 was being fulfilled as Paul's warning to Timothy. So an amazing realization. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. If we just preach the word, brethren, that's all we have to do. That's all we're called to do. Preach the word. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, their own desires, their own agendas, he says, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Tell me what I want to hear and I'll put you at the pulpit. If you don't, you won't. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables, made up stories. Talk about things that aren't in the Bible and make it sound like this is true doctrine, true teaching. And this corruption has advanced to the point that today it goes even beyond the Bible, which was once pushed as tolerance of other views outside Scripture, as in teachings of other religions, now means just live and let live. Doesn't matter. Crossing the boundary into acceptance of those teachings as being just as good as the teachings of Scripture. That's where it's come to. Just as good as Bible truth. Celebrate diversity means not just put up with other viewpoints, but what they want is to accept those viewpoints as your own. And if you don't, they want to force you into accepting those viewpoints. Also in the 1950s was born a new approach for interpreting New Testament scripture. It said, Yahshua could only be nice and never critical, never judgmental. So we'll take all the bad out, all the judgment, all the punishment, the need to obey in any substantive way, and throw it all away. They made Yahshua ecumenical. It's amazing. Man knows no bounds. What naturally resulted is exactly what you would expect. People began to tolerate sin, to scorn sound teachings, to dispense with the Bible itself. And that has led down through the time from that point things like accepting homosexual marriages. It's no longer taboo to live together unmarried. Handing out light Sentences for serious crimes, all of this results from no standards. No standards. Then in the 1960s and 70s came the existential movement, which was about self-realization and freedom to choose your own way. Freedom to make yourself up as you go along. No other standard outside to tell you what to do. You do what you want. Following that wave, Truth comes not from biblical absolutes, but from inner feelings. We can establish our own truth, which is just as good as your truth. 
So you get personal intuition, visions of special revelations. Yahweh told me this and that. So even though it contradicts the Bible, you don't need the absolutes of the word. You are your own truth. Do you wonder why we're suffering all the difficulties we are today, having been primed and pumped full of this stuff for the last 50, 60 years? Imagine. That's why we have these problems. We are becoming a society of self-absorbed hedonists deciding our own moral standard. Exactly what we find scripture teaching would happen. Men will be lovers of their own selves, breaking number one commandment, the most important commandment of all. Follow Yahweh. As we come to the 1980s, we witness the natural outcome to do away with the word. Psychology influences churches. This time, everywhere and everywhere, everything became centered on self. Self-enrichment. People were obsessed with becoming more financially successful than prosperous. Human-centered teachings abounded. While self-glorification that the world was obsessed with became the goals of the religious world as well. Everything bleeds into the church. Everything bleeds in. People went to church to be entertained, not to be enlightened. And we wondered how much further down into the abyss can this society go? Well, guess what? It can go further. We're going to soon find out in this postmodern 1990s came anything goes. You could believe whatever you wanted to believe and find eternal life on top of it all. So the focus shifted from Yahweh to a belief system defined by the worshipers themselves. Give them what they want, do a survey and find out. Truth became subservient to what works, what brings in the people, what fills the pews. Religion became a market-driven business. The world entered the church, literally. Starbucks, movie theaters, football, moved into the mega churches. Yeah, you can watch a Super Bowl, go to church and see it on the big screen. We'll see more and more of that as we advance toward Yasha's return. When man sets the tone and the parameters of worship, you have a worship that follows secular trends and humanistic teachings and culture, just like thunder follows lightning. The key to a popular ministry no longer was the meat of the word and Bible-based understanding. It was image and style. Got to look good. Got to present yourself in the best way. Rather than content, after all, most people, by nature, bristle when they're told they need to make changes in their lives. The natural man does not like that. Don't tell me I got to change. The natural learning of man was already away from the truth, so don't tell me. I established my own truth, you know. Lest you think it couldn't get any worse. In the 90s became came uh, syncretism, teaching that all religions are, that are monotheistic are worshiping the same mighty one. You can worship Allah. You can worship Zeus. Doesn't matter. They're all the same. You're all going to be saved anyway, as long as you have a good heart. You know, the market creates the demand. The man creates the supply. And so the hearers end up shaping their own preachers. They heap to themselves teachers. If the people desire a calf, Golden calf to worship, give it to them. 
We wonder how they could do that. We wonder how the, you know, Aaron could have done that. And Jeroboam could have done that. We wonder how could, how it possibly. When you get into this mind frame, you can see how one thing progresses to another. So, okay, all right, if you want one and call him Yahweh, I'll make you one. Call him Yahweh. If the people desire a calf, ministerial calf makers are everywhere willing to oblige them. Find one that suits you. We've come to the place where people with itching ears don't want to hear sound biblical truth anymore. They want to make their own. And it was evident when they quit bringing their Bibles to church. I remember growing up. All of a sudden, you look around, people don't have their Bibles. Why? Don't need them. They're making their own religion. And so it goes, just one perilous trend after another. And these trends never go away. They just accumulate, pile on, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Where are we now, brethren? Well, we're at the point that being doctrinal, being clear about the word of Yahweh, is seen as divisive. Divisive, the great bad word in our culture. Unloving, uncompassionate. We're now entering the phase of hostility against the Bible. The prevailing belief today is that everybody determines truth for himself and everybody's opinion is as valid as everyone else's opinion. And there's no room for absolute authoritative doctrine in the world, so let alone the Bible. The next step will be to tell us what to preach, like they're doing in Canada. You can't read Romans 1 in Canada and get away with it. Talks about against homosexuality. And beyond this, well... Let's look at the world of prophecy. John 16, 2, And they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does Elohim service, and those things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me, Yahshua said. That's why they'll do it. They have nothing invested except their own desire as a secular society. There's coming a time when those who seek Yahweh will be hated to the point of elimination. You think that couldn't happen in an age of supposed tolerance? Well, you know, tolerance only works one way. People are tolerant as long as you agree with them. It doesn't work the other way. They won't tolerate your counter-opinions. They don't want that. They'll shut you up. They'll boo you off the stage like they do in universities now when... A conservative gets up there. Those who stand on the word, which is diametrically opposed to what we see in the world, will be considered enemies. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with Yahweh. Enmity means odious, odious, something totally detestable. Then James says, whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of Yahweh. We have no choice. We follow Yahweh. We will not bend. We will not merge with. We will not comply with the world. When it's against Yahweh. There's a natural pull within each of us to be accepted by others. And that desire leads to conformity. Look at children. They want to be in with their peers. They don't want to be outside looking in. They want to be part of the group. That's why they join gangs. Conformity with what others do and believe. It's the drive behind the latest fashion trend. And joining with the world's interests in sports, entertainment, and all these other things. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we're admonished not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. See, when you have an unbeliever, the yoke isn't equal. You hook up a, a donkey with 
a horse, maybe, or, or even worse, maybe a, 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 an ox. It doesn't work. They have to be equally yoked. Like, unequally yoked doesn't work. You never see that. You never see one or the other and the other mixed together, pulling a plow or whatever. Children have a powerful urge to be accepted. It's the job of parents to instill in them to follow Yahweh first no matter what. To follow Yahweh first. To have a love for Yahweh so that when the crowd goes one way, the child will say, can't go that way. Sorry, see you tomorrow. He'll draw the line himself and stay back. So much of what Yahweh's word tells us is nonconformist. And humans like to conform. They want to be part of the group. They want to be part of the, of the majority. In that way, it goes counter to the natural urge of human beings to go against what the world is doing. No wonder he says his people are the fewest of all people because by nature, they have to be. They have to go the other way and not follow the trends of the world. Darkness hates light, and there's a whole lot more darkness out there than light, and it's getting darker every day. In 2 Corinthians 6.17, this is quoted from Isaiah 52.11, we are told to come out of the world and be separate, not to touch the unclean thing. He says, and I will receive you. It's even more important today as the world sinks into this moral, spiritual abyss. Why is it so important that his people be special and clean. Why is it? Verse 16 tells us because he would dwell in his people. He will be a father to his people. You're joining a family when you come into the truth. Family of Yahweh. And when you get into a family, you do what the family does. If you don't, you'll find out. It's not going to work to buck the family. We have to learn now how to live in that family. That's what we're doing. One day to be in that kingdom family. If any man defiles the temple, Yahweh will destroy that person, according to 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 17. And then we read verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. Don't try to get along with the world, become worldly. You say, you do, you're a fool. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with Elohim. For it is written, he takes the wise and their own craftiness. And again, Yahweh knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Everything in this world is vain if it's not of Yahweh. It's vain. It's going to go away. It won't be here in the long run. Over in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 3, we see these words. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so what do the churches say? They go back to the ecumenism. Medical attitude. Yasha does it all for you. Nothing you have to do. He does it all. You don't have to do anything. Perfectly counter to 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For that day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Fire means Yahweh's judgment. Fire refines it also as part of uh, uh, judgment in... Uh, in symbolism, if any man's work abide, which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. If he holds to the truth and yet 
has some problems, some issues and so forth that he can't handle, uh, whatever his issue might be, Yahweh will take that into account. But whatever advantage, whatever reward will not be there if it's burned up. The truth is each person will be rewarded in the kingdom according to his or her life here on earth. That's the truth. Some will receive a higher station because their works proved worthy of it. This is a very hard concept for churches to accept because they say, Yasha does it all. Okay, then what? Well, then we go to heaven. Okay, then what? Um, Well, I really don't know. See, that's why they can't accept this teaching because you're rewarded an office, a position, a, you know, something befitting your worthiness in the kingdom because he's going to put you to work. They don't know that because they've never been told anything about that. So they don't understand that works are important. They just throw it all out, baby with the bathwater. Works and the law all jumbled together in some nebulous mass in their, in their minds. Don't understand it, but we'll just let the minister worry about it. The truth is each person is accountable for himself. Everyone is. You have to learn it. You have to know what the word says. You have to study it out because you're going to be responsible for it. It's like taking a test. You know, Say I'm in uh, medical school and I'm taking a test on certain procedures, maybe surgery or something. Well, if I just blow it off and say, well, no big deal. I, need, I don't need to pass this test. You're not going to be able to do the work. Same deal. Because you won't know it, you can't do it. Each person is record, re, uh, rewarded in the kingdom according to his or her life here. Some are going to get a higher station in the kingdom simply because Yahweh finds them worthy. You know, they were given talents. Some got ten cities to rule. Some got five. Some buried theirs. And here, Yahshua have them back. He's going to go nowhere. I don't know how they can look at those parables like that and say it doesn't matter. You know, I don't, I don't get it. If he does it all for you, then why is he judging you based on your works, the rewards that you get? It doesn't make sense. I don't know how they answer that. Others spent more time pursuing material things, which ultimately were lost, of course. They may have remained true, so they were saved, but without a great reward because they had one foot in the Bible and the other foot in the world. You can imagine all sorts of situations. It is imperative we focus on what lasts, what's important, and what counts. But the main thrust of our lives is seeking salvation and in guiding others, helping them to find it because we've been given a truth and an obligation to teach that truth to others. Revelation 22.11, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he that is filthy, let him be filthy still, still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. Verse 12, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Notice this phrase, to give every unto every man according as his work shall be. Oh, he can't have works. That's works righteousness. No, it's works worthiness. I am Alpha and Omega and the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And now the most ignored 
Scripture of our day. Drum roll, please. 22.14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. How about that? Completely ignored. I'll bet if they had a chance, they'd obliterate that out of the pages of the word if they could. Blessed are they that do his commandments, so they may have right to the tree of life. So many layers of air I've been building up. Like, like the hull of a ship with crustaceans and all that stuff, adding and adding and adding, so virtually cutting back the progress of the ship, and ultimately couldn't move at all. So you can hardly recognize the truth unless you first scrape away all the millennia of crud and crust and get down to the pure word. It's the only way. But this is nothing new. Nothing new. I'm not saying anything new that hasn't happened before. A wide diversity of air started very early. With the church, early on, we were warned about this. We were warned. They found their champion, their advocate, their patron in the Apostle Paul by twisting, misrepresenting what he taught, what he wrote, and fabricating what he never taught. You would not go wrong by calling Paul Scripture's most misunderstood misrepresented, misapplied writer. Prophetically, Peter warned us about the way Paul taught and how he would be misunderstood. So we already had a caution sign. So when we come to Paul, slow down, slow down, wait a minute. Let's find out exactly what he's saying here instead of swallowing a hook, line, and sinker, what we've been told all our lives that Paul did away with the law. Second Peter 3.15, on account that the long-suffering of our master is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, who according to the wisdom given unto him, as written unto you, so he was given wisdom, that means divine wisdom, and he writes it down, passes it on to you in his letters, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, or those that have an agenda rest, W-R-E-S-T, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. You therefore, brethren, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest you also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now I can see Peter sitting there listening maybe to a sermon by Paul. You know, he's listening along, yeah, 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 yeah. And all of a sudden saying, ooh, ooh, I can see people twisting that one. Certainly that phrase, what he just said, can be taken wrong. I know that's not what he's saying, but I can see people using that to say that obedience is no longer necessary, Peter must have said. This was Alan speaking, not Peter. But obviously he heard some things. And he was a little bit troubled that people might twist them up. Sure enough, give them a little outlet, boy, they're going to go with it. And they did exactly that, just as Peter warned. He said, they rest his words to their own destruction. What else could lead to destruction if not someone saying that you no longer have to get in line with Yahweh's word, with Yahweh's standards, with Yahweh's teachings, with Yahweh's behavior? Imagine their shock if they could go back to the first century and follow Paul around in his travels, they would think entirely differently. 
and watched as he stopped making tents every seventh day, observed all the holy days, obeyed the Ten Commandments, and other laws that he as a first century Jew would naturally follow, would naturally go with, never violate. No apostle of Yahshua would keep any other weekly day holy but the Sabbath. And we're to follow what they taught as being taught directly from Yahshua. And Paul himself was too, out in the wilderness. A good example of twisting Paul into a pretzel is in Romans 7. Here is a verbatim part of an article by a man who attempted to show that Yahshua replaced the law with his own. All right? Quote, Hence, Paul kept laws from the Torah when it was convenient and it suited his purpose. But he did not follow the law of Moses because that law had come to an end. Romans 7, 4. Wherefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Messiah, that you may be married to another, to him that was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to Elohim. What law was Paul referring to? Just a few verses later, Paul illustrates the law he had in mind. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Now he's contradicted himself, which they always do. On the contrary, I would not have known any sin except through the law. Hey, right? Makes sense. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. I guess that covetousness is okay now because we don't have to follow it. Follow that law. Paul quotes the last of the Ten Commandments. It was this law that had come to an end in order that it might be replaced with a greater law, the law of Messiah, end quote. The fellow should have gone in the other direction in his analysis. And read a few verses earlier. Romans 7, 1, Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. How can this guy now just dismiss that, say it's no longer in effect? And before that, Romans 6.18, being then made free from sin, you become servants of righteousness. And then follows verse 24, when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Ministers have a hard time equating sin with broken law. They don't seem to make that connection. They just can't seem to make that jump that, to make that leap. It's not a leap, it's definition. They can't seem to make the connection with righteousness and obedience either. It is either that Yahweh knew this would be an issue or already was an issue. Either way, Paul proves them wrong in believing that he was antinomianism. Antinomian, which means the law against the law. Turn to Acts 21. Paul is told of a rumor being spread that has been teaching He had been teaching the Jews to forsake the teachings of Moses. So Paul is asked to pay for and participate in taking a Nazarite vow along with four other men, which included offering an animal sacrifice at the temple. Now remember, this is after Yahshua's death. Paul went through with it. Why? Scripture makes it clear. So that all that includes you and me may know that those things which they were informed of concerning you, Paul, are nothing, but that you, Paul, yourself, also walked orderly and, three important words, keep the law. Acts 21, 24. Amazingly, today we see the same thing all over again. Apparently they missed this passage. Apparently they missed this uh, 
demonstration that Paul put on. If he didn't believe in it, he never would have done it. So, almost universally, people say Paul taught law-breaking. In Romans 3.31, Paul said this, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Acts 24.14, Paul says, So I worship the Elohim of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and in the prophets. He believed it all. Believed it all. When the law says, do this, do that, he believed it. I must do that. In Hebrews 10.28, he says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now it's getting serious because it impacts your salvation. As plain spoken as Paul was concerning his view of the law and prophets, many still make the man into a pretzel when it comes to doing it with the law. He was not against it. He knew that the law simply defines sin. If you don't have it, you don't know what sin is, and you'll break, you'll break it every time. His own words testify to that. So what was he against? He was against the teaching that the law justifies you. He believed that justification doesn't come through anything but Yahweh. And most people then take that and leap to say, your life doesn't matter. What you do doesn't matter. You're justified no matter what. They miss this distinction, substituting obedience for justification. Paul never taught to ignore the commandments when he said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Messiah has made us free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. In other words, don't make justification a conditional thing, as the religious leaders were doing. Because only Yahweh can justify. Justify just means just as if you had not sinned. Well, we've all sinned. So it's by Yahweh's grace that we're justified and allowed then to enter into his covenant and then follow his teachings. If we, if we couldn't do that, we couldn't get past the gate, right? Because we, we can't. We can't. We're sinners. But he justified us. He says, okay, I'll let you in. But now I want you to change. Now I want you to be sanctified, set apart. Paul, who was a strict Jew, said he exceeded everyone in righteous obedience. Of course, except Joshua, who would never advocate disobedience. In fact, if he did, he was a false prophet, according to Deuteronomy 13, and would be least in the kingdom of heaven, according to his own words in Matthew 5.18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm wondering if that really means he'll be called least among those in the kingdom. I don't know. I'm not, not sure about that. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So they have no salvation. If you can't be better than a scribe and a Pharisee, who have no salvation, then you won't either. Now, this is a blanket statement. I'm sure there's a few in there uh, who wanted to learn the truth. And we have some examples of those Pharisees in the New Testament that wanted to follow Yahshua. And then he goes on to explain how your righteousness is to exceed the scribes and Pharisees. 
And these were law keepers par excellence, but they had the law misunderstood. Everything was works. Everything was, you know, tie the mint, anise, and cumin, but forgetting the greater importance of the law. Mercy, justice, faith, that sort of thing. They, they missed that part. That's what he's saying. He said, do this, do what they were doing, but don't neglect the biggest thing. Clerics today have no trouble accepting Paul's writings as legitimate. Their trouble is in accepting Paul and what he taught when it came to the Torah. Now to the flip side. Paul has detractors on both sides of the fence. There are Torah contenders, a lot of the Jewish element, who will not accept his writings because they also think he advocated disobedience. Can we trust this man who called himself an apostle? who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament? How can, he be, how can we be absolutely sure his writings are just as inspired as the rest of the word? We can, and I can prove it. Some might cry foul if we see Paul's own letters to validate himself, self-validation. So to avoid that accusation, we'll go elsewhere to prove him. Okay, you ready? We'll examine whether other apostles in the New Testament books confirm the man and his testimony as true and reliable. It's generally accepted that Luke wrote the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. So if Luke wrote the book of Acts and Luke, the book of Luke, he wrote a quarter of the New Testament. All right? As such, Luke was a companion of Paul because he talked about us in Acts over and over. He's talking about Paul and he talks about us. Us. As the writer of Acts. The first person in Acts shows Luke travel with Paul. Luke went with Paul from Troas to Philippi during Paul's second missionary journey. Find that in Acts 16, 10 to 17. From Philippi to Jerusalem, Paul was accompanied by, by uh, Luke. Acts 20, 5 to, 8, uh, 5 to 21. And 18. He was with him on the journey to Rome in Acts 27, 1 to 28. Luke was a regular companion of Paul. Colossians 4.14, we read, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, greet you. Paul's writing this in Colossians. Luke and Demas are greeting you too, along with me. 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Take Mark. And bring him with you, for he is a profitable to me for the ministry. Luke accepted Paul and his ministry. If the guy was false, if he was fake, if he was a charlatan, Luke would never be following him around. But more importantly, Yahshua gave Paul his stamp of approval. Turn to Acts 9.1, where we see Luke, under inspiration, quoting Yahshua's own words to Ananias, a disciple instructed him to lay hands on Paul and restore his eyesight. Remember when he was knocked down on the road to Damascus? Acts 9.15, but the master said unto him, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. They'll accept Yahshua and they won't accept Paul. Paul accepted Yahshua. In fact, he says he's prime, a prime mover, and an important element in my ministry. He's a chosen vessel to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What greater authority do you need? What greater uh, affirmation did Paul need than Yahshua himself to validate his ministry, to validate his teachings? 
And this affirmation is recorded for all time by no less than the spiritual heavyweight Luke, a writer of one of the four evangels. You accept him or you throw him and Paul out. And so some people do. They throw out the whole New Testament because they see the contradiction in just throwing out Paul. Another place is Acts 26.14 where Paul recounts his conversion to Agrippa. Goes through the whole scenario. We find in Acts 22.13 this apostle Ananias calls Paul brother Shaul and brought back his eyesight. Why would he do that if he was a heretic? In Acts 9 we learn that initially the disciples were hesitant to accept Paul citing his previous persecution of the believers. And I can understand that. He was dragging him into jail, taking the believers, everything he could do to stop the truth. I can believe how they wouldn't like that. They wouldn't like him because of it, not realizing the change that happened when Yahshua said, you're the man, you're my man, and I'm going to make you one of the best evangelists in the universe. They didn't apparently understand that. But Barnabas, the great stalwart, always working behind the scenes, stands up for Paul, explaining Paul's conversion and genuine witness for Yahshua's proof that he's legitimate. He says, wait a minute. This guy is converted. You can count on him. He's the real deal. The disciples' response to Barnabas' stirring speech was to include Paul as one of their own. So you have to accept all the disciples because they accepted him and all of their testimony. Acts 9.30, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. They fully accepted his apostleship and his authority. They sent him on a ministerial trip, an important one, because they trusted him. And they knew they could. Later in Acts 15.4, we see Paul along with Barnabas being received at Jerusalem by the apostles and the elders. The reception committee included two key apostles, not the least of which is James, Yahshua's brother. There they discussed a question about circumcision of the law and how it relates to the Gentiles. Do you have to become a Jew first before you can become a true believer? That was the question. Do you have to convert to Judaism first? They'd never been hit with that question before, so let's go to Jerusalem and ask the elders, see what they say. Find out. You don't have to, by the way. You can accept Yahshua without going back into Judaism. I don't know what that means for the Messianic movement sometimes today, but we'll let them worry about that. Once the issue is resolved, we read, then pleased it, the apostles and elders, with the whole assembly to uh, send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. They not only acknowledged and accepted Paul, regarded his contribution to their discussion, but also sent some of the ministerial leadership with him to Antioch to help him in his work, to help convey their doctrinal decision to the people, Yes, you people, I know he persecuted people of the way, the people of the truth. We know that, but we've got that figured out now. He's converted. He's a different man now. And you watch him go. Just watch this man go. He will be a dynamo. 
The other apostles and elders even referred to the two men as our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Verse 25. You know, I could go on, but if Paul is good enough for Luke, for Peter, for James, for Barsabas, for Silas, he should be good enough for all of us. If he was so clearly accepted with the others, with these men, like Barnabas and John Mark and Luke, traveled with them, ministered with them, what authority do we have to question what he wrote? Say, he's not part of the scriptures. We'll throw out Paul, as so many do. Now, the ultimate ulterior motive is to destroy anything that smacks of obedience so that we can establish our own path as we discussed early on, to make our own way, to make it fit our ideology. Well, go ahead, be my guest. But when the judge comes, you can explain it to him. I want to be where he tells me to be, not doing my own thing, developing my own understanding and throwing out half the Bible or whatever they do. Ephesians 4, 5, and I'll end with that, says there's one faith, one hope, and one baptism. Not many. And that's why when you see hundreds, thousands of different churches out there teaching different things, people are confused. What is the truth? (laughs) Which one is right? All we can tell them is preach the word, follow the word. If the word says this, then follow it. If you can prove and show that the Sabbath was kept after Yahshua's death, before and after, uh, then I would think... If Yahshua kept it, his disciples kept it, and he taught it, I would think that's the way to go. But if you want to follow Roman church doctrine, even though it's been going on for 2,000 years, be my guest. It'll all come out in the wash. I just want to be in line with Scripture. And when we read that the feast days are important, critical, that Yahshua kept them, he taught his disciples, who also kept them and taught them in their writings and letters, Hey, good enough for me. Can't go wrong. So anyway, I hope this helps. Uh, Had a different perspective on some of the things that have been going on for many, many years. And uh, we need to just follow the truth. You know, the truth is what matters and, and not our own ideas, not our own teachings, and not man's, especially not man's secular understanding because that goes nowhere. That's a dead end. I'll guarantee you that. May Yahweh bless you.